My name is Dario Hasenschlaf, Ivy Degree in International Affairs, and I'm here with Walter Hagwitz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand nuclear proliferation and non-proliferation through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Um, why are we speaking about this topic today, nuclear proliferation and non-proliferation? Hi, Dario. Well, last week we recorded an episode talking about all the facts surrounding nuclear proliferation, exactly with the purpose of today being able to put that into the context of the Western bubble, with the West being a hugely important actor in the proliferation of nuclear weapons, in also uh, pushing for the non-proliferation discourse, and yet there's a lot of hypocrisy and destructive dynamics in Western foreign policy when it comes to nuclear weapons. So that's what we want to expose today. Exactly, because last week we talked about nuclear weapons in general. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I encourage you do. Um, and this week we're going to talk about, you know, the main concepts behind nuclear proliferation and non-proliferation. What is the question of the week? So we've received answers to our Iraq homework from a few weeks ago, and there was one answer that stood out to us in particular from a listener from Mexico. And it reads, I was taught world history up until around the Cold War all in a single year. And the other years I was learning Mexican history. The year I was set to take world history, around 13 years old, the Mexican government removed the Holocaust from school curriculums. So you get the picture about the quality and of our awareness of the war and global history, end quote. Two things really stand out in this. The first, as with most countries, I would argue, um, there is an overemphasis on domestic history, on national history. That kind of makes sense. However, I would argue that global history is often history about humanity, right? So what happens in a specific case, whether it's in China or in India or in Europe, has relevance for humanity to learn from the lessons, unless you believe there's something unique in, in Mexican nature that doesn't require learning lessons from others. So in that sense, I would very much argue for greater emphasis on world history and a little bit less emphasis on national history. And the, the second thing that stands out is that it's it's obvious that in a country like Germany or the Netherlands, um, uh, the Holocaust takes a much more important part in the school curriculum than in Mexico. There, That makes a lot of sense in itself. But the fact that the Holocaust is entirely removed is shocking for the very obvious reason that we discussed, namely that the Holocaust is the biggest crime humanity has ever committed on itself, and at least organized crime, a well-crafted decision to actually bring destruction on humanity, where six million people died in an efficient murder machine, essentially. And as a result, every person across the world, regardless of whether they've ever been part of anything related to the Holocaust or not, needs to be aware of this. There, there's very little um, I would add to this, uh, especially as a German citizen, except for the fact that 
was four million more people uh, who, who died in the Holocaust. Um, when you take into account um, all the dissidents to, uh, to to the government and uh, all, all all the other well ethnic groups that were involved there. Um, but let's move on to to the second part of the email, and um, it reads. All of this to say that I did not learn about the Iraq war until I was older, around 16 or 17, present on the internet and sometimes through movies like Vice. I've never, in the mainstream media, received a positive outlook about the 2003 invasion of Iraq. It has never been painted that way, at least by millennial or Gen Z internet users. It has always been painted as an invasion of greed with falsified motives, end quote. And... As a similar age group, I think that this is very much the way I experienced this as well, is that I it was never taught in school. The first time I, I mean, I knew about it, I was aware about it, but the first time I learned about it in any meaningful way was in university or through documentaries. So I very much understand the listener's perspective here. And that's also one then one of the explanations which keeps on surprising me how the young generation can talk about Ukraine as if it's a singular event because we don't learn about all those other wars that were also voluntary invasions of other countries before listeners get upset with me I'm not I'm not comparing George W. Bush to uh, Vladimir Putin but both were voluntary invasions of other countries that led to enormous destruction the fact that the the listener has this has has this image being uh, thrust upon the invasion of Iraq of simply one of greed with falsified motives in itself in itself is already a little bit problematic, right? Because yes, of course there will have been greed and and there were definitely falsified motives surrounding the invasion of Iraq, but it really was part of a Western machine that was completely full of itself. So the, the deeper understanding of what led to the invasion of Iraq goes beyond some corrupt politicians in the White House. It, it, it requires an understanding of how this Western bubble actually leads to very destructive outcomes. And so the observation that, one, it's not being told at schools, that it's not being properly analyzed, and two, that now the new generation seem to kind of dismiss it as, oh, these were just greedy politicians, shows exactly the uphill battle, uh, the uphill climb we still have uh, in front of us, because we need to understand these events from a Western bubble perspective, from one where the West does not properly realize its own destructive capacity. And if you, our listeners, would like to be featured in the question of the week as well, then send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com. With this, let's move on to the main topic of today's episode. And what are the facts? Nuclear proliferation is the spread of nuclear weapons, fissionable material and weapons, applicable nuclear technology and information to nations not recognized as nuclear weapon states by the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, commonly known as the Non-Proliferation Treaty. This agreement is a landmark international treaty whose objective is to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons and weapons technology, to promote cooperation in the peaceful uses of nuclear energy, and to further the goal of achieving nuclear disarmament. The treaty represents the only binding commitment in a multilateral treaty to the goal of disarmament by the nuclear weapon states and opened for signatures in 1968 
and entered into force in 1970. A total of 191 states have joined the treaty, including the five recognized nuclear weapon states. Non-signatories are India, Israel, Pakistan, and South Sudan. North Korea originally signed the treaty, but withdrew in 2003. What is the bubble? Okay, so when we talk about the Western bubble perspective on all of this, um, the first question I have, simply because I had this question while researching, is uh, still based on the fact sheet. Why is South Sudan uh, not a signatory to, to this agreement? Uh, the four other states make sense because they all have nuclear weapons. But South Sudan doesn't have nuclear weapons as far as I'm concerned. And we didn't mention them in the last episode. No, and South Sudan is definitely uh, not developing any nuclear weapons, have, has no plans to do so, I can guarantee you that. And it, it, there, there, there are essentially two reasons for it. One, South Sudan has been too caught up since its independence in civil war. Um, it's relatively stable at the moment, but it is going up and down in terms of internal strife and internal um, conflict. And as a result, South Sudan simply doesn't have the political stability to engage with these global treaties in the way that you would hope any country could. Um, the second reason is also that there are always a lot of small details in these large global treaties that might actually require um, some tough decisions to be made with for local politicians. And so it's not simply saying South Sudan is against nuclear weapons. I'm sure that South Sudanese politicians have no problem with that statement. We dismiss, we reject nuclear weapons, but the devil's in the details, right? And, and that requires some serious um, analysis and political debates that currently South Sudan simply doesn't have time for. And, and they're too young. I mean, they, they only became a state in 2011. And then almost straight away plunged into a horrific civil war. Exactly. But then let's now fully talk about the, the Western bubble perspective. Um, why is this problematic? I mean, so when we're talking about non-proliferation, at least I always, from a German perspective, you know, I hear a lot about non-proliferation. But why is this problematic that the West is pushing for this so much? Well, in itself, there's nothing problematic about pushing for non-proliferation. I mean, if uh, hopefully every reasonable human being can understand the argument that, that nuclear weapons and existential threats, a sort of the Damocles sort of Damocles um, hanging over our world, is dangerous is scary is something that we should try to get rid of despite the argument that last week we kind of pushed for which is you can also make the case that the existence of nuclear weapons has reduced local violence has re reduced the chance of full-blown war for example between india and pakistan obviously the idea of us pointing very destructive weaponry at each other as a global human society is not a good thing so Anyone, whether it's the United States or France or India or China, arguing for uh, nuclear non-proliferation agreements has a good basis to stand on. The problem from a Western perspective is that there is an awful lot of hypocrisy and therefore destructive tendencies under the radar um, that are not properly being analyzed. For example, the very obvious uh, observation that the biggest proliferator of nuclear weapons over the past 80 years has been the West. 
So this West has developed nuclear weapons to the extent that the United Kingdom, France and the United States are some of the most powerful nuclear forces on the planet. And then they say to the rest of the world, oh, we have to work on reducing um, this nuclear threat. But we have them now, so there's not much we can do about our own, but we have to make sure that nobody else gets them, right? That that kind of idea. There is a there there is a real hypocritical problem there with simply not giving the right example. Um, it's it kind of reminds me a little bit of the conversation we had about environmental. Uh, change where the West has been the main polluter of the world, main emitter of CO2 emission, uh, CO2 gases into the world's atmosphere, and now is saying to developing countries, okay, we did it and we got rich by doing so, but now it's important that you don't do it anymore, right? There is a certain level of hypocrisy there. Maybe this is also the time that we should once again point out that the only two nuclear weapons that were ever dropped were dropped by a Western power, by the United States. Exactly. It's I, I wouldn't only call it hypocrisy, I would also call it a certain level of arrogance. You know, oh, we have nuclear weapons and when we have them, the world is safe. But anyone getting them oh, that would, would cause nuclear holocaust immediately. I think that's a... I would understand if people were to argue in that way. Um, and I would understand if people were, were to be seriously upset, um, you know, with this narrative of we have them, but you can't have them. And that in itself is very destructive because what it does, it, it, it takes the universality of non-proliferation away. This hypocrisy of the West makes it into, turns it into a political issue, namely those who have and those who have not. And therefore, um, any sincere attempt to make a, the world free of nuclear weapons will always be tainted by the presence of these Western nuclear powers. But let's look into why this is the reason. So why the West wants to have these nuclear weapons. And ultimately, it is to keep the world as it is, to keep the world according to its own standards, to control the global system. Exactly, which is a system that was set up 80 years ago. And for a very long time, the West has been developing a world according to its own image, right? The West being the deity, the god. And, and, and shaping humanity according to um, its, its, its image. And this can be seen in uh, terms of the United Nations, in terms of uh, the Bretton Woods Agreement, the IMF, the World Bank. This whole set of global institutions all built to further a Western agenda. Now in the 21st century, that Western agenda is collapsing or at the very least has been significantly weakened. Um, but one of the clear aspects that is left is that the West still militarily is incredibly dominant, incredibly powerful, and its nuclear weapons still guarantee a security system surrounding the West that um, they very much want to keep intact. Uh, the fact that they have nuclear weapons and not everyone else has nuclear weapons, only a few others have nuclear weapons, allows the West to have this unique security position. And therefore, again, non-proliferation um, has a dark side to it. It is a very you know, unique security situation. And here I'm once again going to bring up Germany because it is one of the bigger Western states that doesn't have nuclear weapons. And also the population here is very skeptical of nuclear in general, nuclear weapons in particular. So Germany has always been pushing 
um, intensively for non-proliferation. However, all of this while being protected by the NATO nuclear umbrella, by the you know by by agreements or by one of the NATO agreements, Germany needs to be able. Uh, to drop nuclear weapons on behalf of the United States, and there are even nuclear weapons, nuclear well, nuclear warheads, um, s stationed in Germany, and that to me is, I don't know, that to me is uh, hypocritical again because you're you're sitting at the United United Nations Security Council pushing for non-proliferation, but you have them on your own territory, and you're very conveniently being protected by them. And those dynamics have gotten worse over time rather than better, right? Um, uh, there's a real case to be made that during the Cold War, there was a genuinely strong and influential anti-nuclear weapons movement in Europe. Uh, people uh, who were went into the streets and who put significant pressure on governments not to follow the US or UK or French example of um, embracing the existence of nuclear weapons. And for example, I, as, as a tiny baby of one to two years old, uh, was taken by my parents on a nuclear and anti-nuclear protest in the Netherlands, where my parents protested the idea of nuclear missiles being put on Dutch soil. I, I must be one or two, it must be 1979 or 1980, something like that. But so in that sense, uh, that, that movement was a genuinely influential movement where politicians had to respond. However, now, um, despite in, at the time polit Dutch politicians saying, okay, okay, we've heard you, we're not going to put these nuclear missiles on Dutch soil, now we know that they were absolutely there and that the Dutch government actually lied to its own population. Now in the 21st century, we've got confirmation that during the, in the 70s and in the 80s, the United States did place those nuclear weapons um, on Dutch territory. So in the in the 20th century, there was still this idea of a population keeping check on its government and a government actually having to lie about it. Now there's no lying involved anymore because nobody really cares in, in the Netherlands or in Germany and people are kind of okay with the idea of being protected by this nuclear umbrella. I would say especially now, uh, in light of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, suddenly a very intensive anti-nuclear protests um, are almost non-existent anymore. Um, however, I would like to to move on to another aspect of the West wanting to control the global system. And here, what is interesting to me is the way the West pursues, um, and I would say uh, aggressively pursues and targets countries that um, want nuclear weapons. So there is North Korea, um, and they have nuclear weapons by now. And some of the most well impressive sanctions uh, have been put in place against the country. Then you have Iran, where there is still, it's not clear whether Iran is actually pursuing nuclear weapons or not, um, or whether this is just a you know political tool for them. But the West is very aggressive towards these two countries. And when we compare this to, to Israel um, of the 1980s, I don't think I don't think it measures up. Absolutely. Uh, the West essentially chooses the winners and losers there, right? The West says, okay, Israel, um, well, we feel maybe a tiny bit uncomfortable. And when I say the West, the United States probably doesn't feel uncomfortable with Israel having nuclear weapons at all. But Europe felt a slightly uncomfortable when the news broke, but they were kind of okay with it because Israel is an ally. They were also relatively mild towards Pakistan and India especially India, when it came to nuclear weapons, despite Pakistan and India, just like Israel, clearly going against non-proliferation regimes. Um, 
However, because we don't like Iran, because we don't like uh, North Korea, uh, we use this nuclear non-proliferation narrative to put them further in a corner. And this is such a common pattern over and over again. We have countries that we like and they get away with sometimes literal murder. We have countries that we don't like and we use these universal narratives, this, 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 this fake idealism about a nuclear free world to actually make life even worse for those countries or for those regimes, right? A very interesting test would be what happens if, uh, for example, Saudi Arabia announces five years from now that they are developing nuclear weapons. How, how will the West react to that? And I can guarantee you it won't be the same as the way that they've been reacting towards Iran, a country that still has not um, announced that it's developing nuclear weapons at all. I very much agree with that assessment, um, especially because Saudi Arabia already publicly stated that in case Iran were to actually have nuclear weapons, that they would start their own program as a response um, you know, to those, which shows the regional nature of these types of concerns. I mean, we've seen it with India and Pakistan. However, on the other side, we've also seen that the most comprehensive and strongest agreements on non-proliferation are actually from regions. So we have the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons in Latin America and the Caribbean, the same for the South Pacific, um, for Southeast Asia, for you know the whole continent of Africa, and also for a zone in Central Asia. So we have these efforts here, um, and, and I think that, that this very much reflects countries saying that you keep your nuclear weapons away from our continents, please. We do not want to deal with this. And also creating that, you know, that overall overarching treaty is incredibly difficult, especially if some of the countries involved, the five permanent members of the Security Council, are blocking any form of disarmament. And what's often forgotten here is that these concerns that lead to the development of nuclear weapons are direct concerns related to um, military threats, conventional threats, that is regional in itself, and most nuclear weapons will never have a global reach. Why? Because the delivery systems, which we discussed last time, are actually really complex and are not easy to um, develop. So this, this, this mythology about nuclear weapons simply being about the Soviet Union and the United States about to destroy each other is not really borne out by reality. Reality shows that nuclear weapons get either prohibited or developed based on how regions deal with their own surroundings, right? And in the case of Saudi Arabia and Iran, there's this clear rivalry. In the case of Latin America, for example, there's this clear understanding of whatever we do, we don't need military means to achieve it. Exactly that. Um, and this kind of leads to the core reason, and this is something we discussed in the in the last episode, of why countries would develop nuclear weapons. And it's usually when they're being, you know, outgunned, when there's too much military, conventional military on the other side. And this is either happening, you know, with India and Pakistan, you just said that, or this is also happening with countries simply feeling threatened. And this is what we discussed with North Korea last week, where North Korea has the fear of the of the Kim dynasty, of the Kim government being changed, of a regime change. And there's, I mean, there's a country and there's the West, um, which has been, you know, very actively changing regimes um, all over the world uh, for the past for the past hundred years. Very consistently so, right? The, the United States and European allies 
have been very, very blatant with respect to their comfort levels of using military means or any other type of mean to change the makeups of makeup of countries. So if we follow the narrative from last week where we say, typically, if you have a conventional threat, if you cannot defend your borders somehow, then you have an incentive to develop nuclear weapons as a last resort to protect your country, to protect your regime somehow from being overrun, then anyone who is on the bad side of the West has, has that incentive, right? Because the West has consistently shown a very aggressive nature in terms of wanting to shape the world in their own image. And what makes it then particularly ugly is for the West to then act as if their non-proliferation is just out of the goodness of their heart and to develop humanity. But basically, it is the West saying, we don't want you to be able to defend yourself against us. Libya, Gaddafi, how dare you think about developing nuclear weapons? Because we want to be able to overthrow you. We want to be able to invade you. Saddam Hussein, how dare you de develop nuclear weapons? For the record, Saddam Hussein never developed nuclear weapons, but that was the narrative, because we want the right to use our Pentagon might to mess with your country. Obviously, if you take a step back from your Western bubble, that is a horrible approach to global affairs. And nobody can then say that the West does this because they genuinely want to promote peace in the world. They simply want to point at certain countries and say, we don't like you, we don't like what you're doing, therefore we want to be able to mess with you. And if you have nuclear weapons like North Korea right now, it becomes a lot harder to mess with you. And in line with, you know, the overall militarization and that aggressive military behavior of the West not only the West, I think we can include uh, other states here as well, uh, nam namely Russia. And those two, especially the United States and Russia, are then responsible for, you know, uh, furthering that narrative around that with a discussion that has erupted about tactical nuclear weapons. And we discussed this in the last episode. Um, can nuclear weapons even be tactical? Can they only be strategic? But simply the discussion around it is already creating a dangerous narrative. Yeah, so nuclear weapons by themselves are bad enough, even if they're purely a last resort measure, mutually assured destruction, this kind of thing that you would only press the button if your country is completely overrun. That, that already is a big enough problem, right? Because it means that we're, we, we have this existential threat um, that we have voluntarily created as humanity. But at the very minimum, conceptually, we can put that in a specific corner. Like as long as all the systems that we discussed last week, all the systems surrounding it are well functioning. And at lo as long as we believe in the rational decision making of our leaders, the chances of nuclear holocaust breaking out are relatively small. But now with the United States and Russia um, developing this idea of tactical nuclear weapons, this idea of nuclear weapons actually a, as a useful tool on the battlefield, something that might be employed without mutually assured destruction, you're completely blurring the lines. And some people argue that there is no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapon, that it will always be strategic. But at least the narrative is changing as if it is just another tool in our toolbox. 
And the result of that is that we're moving much closer to 12 o'clock when it comes to nuclear holocaust. Because now, the moment one of the two, and in the future there might be more nations, start using it on the battlefield, is the moment that then the distinction no longer is clear. And once it's being used on the battlefield, what is the difference between that and using it against the city? What is then the difference between that and using it to destroy the entire country of your enemy? So all of a sudden, we can no longer separate it from conventional warfare, making the world a much, much scarier place to live in. And the United States needs to take responsibility for that. They should have said, we are not going to pursue tactical nuclear weapons at all. We do not believe in that. Instead, they're the only ones who've got them deployed. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? And when we're talking about the damage or what is the problem, you know, with the Western bubble um, on nuclear non-proliferation, I mean, what is the damage? Because, yes, there's, uh, I mean, hypocrisy involved and there's very little trust. And I mean, as we just discussed about tactical nuclear weapons, also the actual danger of nuclear weapons being deployed is increased. But what's the damage for non-proliferation of all of this? Well, so... As, as we said before, the, in principle, in isolation, anyone saying, I want to work on non-proliferation has a good basis to stand on, right? It makes a lot of sense to want to limit or ideally completely get rid of nuclear weapons in our world. That's without question a righteous goal. However, the way that the West has gone about it means that the world is actually less safe with their non-proliferation um, talk. Because when they talk about non-proliferation without actually taking the responsibility themselves, and yes, I know that the United States has reduced their nuclear warheads, but they still have plenty uh, to create destruction and there are no plans whatsoever to get rid, rid of it in the United States or in France or the UK. So the way they go about it is saying... Actually, nuclear weapons are a way for us to control the world. Non-proliferation is a way for us to control the world. And as a result, the global community does not have the ability to actually deal with this in any objective way. It will always be a tool for those who have versus those who have not. And all those more utopian approaches from, for example, Latin American perspective or sub-Saharan African perspective to actually create a world that is free of nuclear weapons are basically overshadowed by Western involvement in those non-proliferation um, agreements. You, you said something very interesting there. It's the haves and the haves not, uh, have nots. Um, and this includes China and Russia. Because yes, this is the Western Bubble podcast. And obviously we're talking about this from a Western Bubble perspective because they are the ones who are pushing for non-proliferation um, the most. However, China and Russia are very much part of that club, despite not being part of the West, is maybe not the same level of hypocrisy, but those two are part of the club. Yes, they are. And by the way, it should be pointed out that China has uh, been much more comfortable in rejecting nuclear weapons in a lot of their uh, talk than the West has, right? So China likes to portray themselves as, as an alternative to the West and one that believes in global institutions in the 21st century, much more so than the West. Uh, the issue is that as long as uh, the West is not willing to give up their nuclear weapons, of course, Russia and China under no pressure whatsoever to do it either. And, and that means that um, the West 
can can continue this narrative uh, while Russia and China also develop their nuclear weapons, and only those countries that are outside of that loop have this existential problem. One one of the mechanisms behind non-proliferation we discussed last week is that non-proliferation is basically another way of trusting someone. Is that as you know, we, we talked about this in our extra episode on Putin leaving the START Treaty, and that there's trust being lost because you know if you mutually inspect your arsenal, there there's a certain level of trust, and this is something that's being lost in especially in the world we live in in a in a world built around hostility and in particular the war in Ukraine. Yeah, so if. The successes with respect to non-proliferation are not successes that are decided upon over uh, one or two conferences, that are not successes that have been developed over six months periods. They have been developed over many, many years and often years that are associated with major changes. For example, the fall of the Soviet Union. So when could the West, when did the West believe that they could trust Russia when the Soviet Union was about to collapse? Uh, these are long-term trust issues that require a lot of effort, a lot of um, relation building over time. And only after a certain level of trust is reached can you engage in the verification processes that we discussed last week. And like many of such things, even at an individual psychological level, you can notice this, trust takes a lot of effort, but is destroyed very, very quickly. And now the war in Ukraine very, very clearly has diminished that trust very drastically with the result of um, the West talking more comfortably about developing their nuclear weapons because they trust Russia less. But just as importantly, the Kremlin feeling all of a sudden completely left out of the Western loop, the feeling that the West is essentially fighting a proxy war in Ukraine against them. Therefore, the West is supplying the incentives to Moscow to develop their nuclear arsenal further, to make sure that whatever happens, they will always be able to defend themselves um, at a Westphalian sovereignty level. Because make no mistake about it, the trouble that Russia is having in Ukraine only shows who is the top dog at a conventional level. If Russia cannot easily defeat Ukraine, and they clearly can't, then there is absolutely no way that Russia is a conventional threat for NATO to NATO. But NATO is absolutely a conventional threat to Russia. Therefore, once again, creating a vicious circle, less trust, um, more sense of threat coming from the West, and therefore the likelihood of proliferation in Moscow and potentially even in China being increased. And what now? So this paints a pretty, pretty bad picture for the future and us moving away from globalized peace. But is there a way out of this? Is there a way to rebuild this trust? Because Russia feels threatened because they have invaded Ukraine. And it's, as you pointed out, not going the way you know they wanted it to go. Therefore, uncovering their weaknesses. The West is playing into this fear, into this fear of being threatened by the West, into this fear of being weakened. So how do we get out of this? What type of trust-building exercises uh, could we could we send Biden and Putin into where, I don't know, there's maybe some mediator who, who lets them hold, hold a talking round? In the short term, there's nothing that can really be done because the West has committed to fighting this 
in proxy war in Ukraine. That's the, it. They have clearly stated that they're looking for the defeat of Russia without, by the way, clearly identifying what that defeat would look like. You know, there are lots of different ways of defeating Russia. And it seems that right now, every time the, there is a Ukrainian success story, then defeat becomes more aggressive. So first push Russian forces out, then Crimea, then let's move all the way to Moscow and overthrow the Putin regime. It, it's becoming wild. So in the short term, there's nothing that can be done to build trust. And unfortunately, trust will be decreased over the next few months uh, and possibly years, depending on the military situation in Ukraine. In the long run, the only way for a country like Russia or North Korea or Iran to actually trust the West enough to engage in meaningful non-proliferation discussions is for the West to stop being a threat to those countries. And this may sound really, really controversial to a lot of listeners because they're so full of the Western bubble. But if you take a step back, all those countries have in common that they feel threatened conventionally, but also in a narrative perspective by this Western rhetoric that is matched with um, huge military might and a willingness to engage militarily with the rest of the world if the West is unhappy with their surroundings. And so you've got a situation that the only way to start rebuilding trust, very much like the 1980s and early 1990s, when it seemed that the West didn't need its military anymore because the Soviet Union had been defeated, the only way for proper trust building to happen in a non-proliferation context is for the West to stop being a threat to those other countries, which means stop obsessing so much about them not being liberal and Western and democratic and all that. Stop trying to determine how other countries need to run their affairs and stop using your conventional military to actually shape the world in your own image. Only when the world sees that can they say, okay, now we can have a meaningful conversation with Western powers about reducing our nuclear ambitions, because maybe we don't need our nuclear arsenal anymore because the West is no longer a threat to us. This sounds like a very sad realization um, that nuclear weapons won't go away. Because I don't see a change in behavior from any of the sides. I don't see a change in behavior from, from the West. I don't see a change in behavior from, from Russia or China. So that means that nuclear weapons won't go away. Um, and what, what will this ultimately lead to, let's say, 100 years down the line, let's say, power dynamics between global superpowers change? How, how is this going to play out? Unfortunately, I agree with your assessment. Nuclear weapons aren't going to go away because it is not an unlikely scenario that at the moment that the West stops with this aggressive narrative towards the rest of the world, is the moment that the West has lost power, still has its nuclear weapons, and now becomes, if you like, the Russia or the North Korea of the future, where other powers actually are the dominant forces. The West will not renounce the nuclear weapons because they want to protect their Westphalian sovereignty. They want to make sure that they're never existentially threatened by China or India or Russia or anyone else. And now you've got these other newfound powers whoever they might be, let's say for a second China and India, um, 
create a world in their own image, therefore pushing, let's say, countries like Indonesia or like Bangladesh or whoever else to also develop nuclear weapons. So the spread of nuclear weapons is almost guaranteed, which is a very, very sad observation. The West is not going to renounce nuclear weapons. In the short term, the West is not, the West is not going to renounce their aggressive narrative, their Western bubble towards the rest of the world. And the moment they would, would be at a time that there's another aggressive narrative. And therefore, the moment nuclear weapons were developed in the 1940s, we almost guaranteed a future full of nuclear weapons. And there doesn't seem to be any obvious way out. See, I wonder whether there will be a China bubble podcast in the future. Let's say China becomes the dominant uh, superpower. And, and I mean, these patterns that we describe here are obviously not exclusive to the West. Um, it's just very much the Western case study we talk about. And this dynamic is, is simply human. I wonder whether there will be an, a, Chinese West, a Chinese bubble podcast at some point recording an episode of Nuclear Weapons. That is hugely interesting point to make and i'm very happy that you're making it because it allows us to sort of state our love for the west in the sense that this podcast is absolutely not exclusively useful to western policymakers i would argue yes we do it from a western perspective because that's where what we're most familiar with but already it's completely obvious that Indian diplomats or Indian policymakers or Chinese policymakers and certainly Russian policymakers all have their own bubble. One of the reasons why we dedicate our free time to this podcast is because we love the West and we, we would like the West to still do well, despite all their mistakes, despite all their policy errors, despite all their aggression and starting off wars unnecessarily. Uh, we hold the West dear and therefore we dedicate our time to it. But I would very much encourage Chinese policymakers to also critically look at their own bubble and Russian policymakers, for heaven's sake, look at what you're doing. How was it possible that you invaded Ukraine? Um, what, what was the bubble that led to that? What a huge strategic blunder. The lesson here from a proliferation perspective is that the West behaves like a powerful actor even if the West is no longer such a powerful actor, there will be other powerful actors that will continue this proliferation game, unfortunately. This seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on nuclear proliferation and non-proliferation. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? I have a quote here from Victor Hugo, the French novelist, who said something in a world before nuclear weapons, but this very much applies to the combination of nuclear weapons with the West. When God desires to destroy a thing, he entrusts its destruction to the thing itself. Every bad institution of this world ends by suicide.